Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 276. Today's big Bible question, what does it mean that Christians are adopted and co-heirs with Christ? Well, hello, friends. Happy and blessed Monday to you. Today, we're going to be talking about a subject that is close to me personally, adoption. As I may have mentioned before, I myself am adopted at three weeks roughly, so I really have zero memory of my birth parents. From my earliest years, my mom and dad let me know that I was adopted in the best possible way. I knew I was adopted, so there was never some big shocking reveal later in life, but my parents never treated me as anything other than their son. As such, I grew up not ever feeling like a second-class citizen, so to speak, because of being adopted. Not that being adopted makes you a second-class citizen. I just never had that thought or feeling at all. And we're going to talk about today how being adopted makes you a first-class citizen. So that's a good thing. Um, It wasn't a stigma at all to me. As far as I know, my friends knew I was adopted. At least my close friends did, and probably everybody did too, because I talked about it from time to time. They never made a big deal out of it. I didn't make a big deal out of it. I I can't honestly think of a single time in my life that anybody made any sort of negative comment towards me because I was adopted. In fact, the weird thing is uh, my two best friends in high school, or two of my, say, four best friends in high school, they were adopted too. And we didn't really gravitate around each other because of that. We found out later in our friendship. So if you are adopted, I hope your experience has been the same, and I grieve with you if not. I would say that there it was about 1,000 times harder to grow up with glasses, because I had glasses up until when I was about 14 or so, than to grow up adopted. But I realize that not everybody has that experience, and I kind of gather that glasses aren't that much of a big deal anymore. They really were in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. They were the kind of thing to get you bullied, but eventually I grew into kind of a big uh, and tall person, and that sort of took care of some of that bullying things. Well, I always thought it was kind of interesting and fascinating to be adopted. It added an air of mystery to my life. Were my parents aliens from another world? Were they superheroes, supervillains, master criminals? I searched for them some over the years and always rooted for them to be interesting people. I could handle pretty much anything they were except utterly boring and standard people. I've still to this day not found my dad, but I did find out who my birth mom was and it took me like years and years and years. Uh, And she's anything but boring, so that was comforting. But we're not talking about biological adoption today. We're talking about something much deeper and longer lasting than that. Well, yes, of course, adoption on earth should last a lifetime, and it does. But adoption into the family of God lasts an eternity. Hashtag Bible juke. Speaking of the Bible, today's passages include 2 Samuel 24, which is an interesting passage considering that we read David's last words yesterday. And, uh, spoiler alert, he's still alive and will be for the next few chapters. And it's as violent as you might su- suspect it to be, probably more so. We're also going to read Psalms chapter 79, Ezekiel 31, and Galatians chapter 4, which is our focus chapter. Well, actually, let's go ahead and read it right now. Listen out for what Paul has to say about adoption and being co-heirs with Christ, because today we are talking about literally being in the family of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now, I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. 
Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. H-E-I-R, by the way. But in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You are observing special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. I beg you, brothers and sisters, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have not wronged me. You know that I previously preached the gospel to you because of a weakness of the flesh. You did not despise or reject me, through my though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So then, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? They court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. But it is always good to be pursued in a good manner and not just when I am with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth, burst into song and shout, You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the Spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. So that's a very wonderful and thought-provoking chapter. All who have believed in Jesus through faith are sons of God. We are to be clothed in Christ. That's our first and primary identity, that we are clothed in him. That identity is so strong that you and I aren't first Americans or wherever you're from, Zimbabwe or India or Australia or, or New Zealand or Canada or... Uh, I believe we just had somebody join us uh, from Ottawa, having downloaded uh, 60 episodes yesterday. Welcome aboard, my Canuck friend. We're not first our nationality. We're not first male or female. We're not first rich or poor, slave or free, white or black, handsome or ugly, cool or popular, uh, cool or unpopular, that is, or abused or not abused, but we are first in Christ. 
That is our primary and first and foremost identity. Because we are in Christ, we are sons of God and heirs of God's glorious riches promised to Abraham and to Jesus. Before salvations, before salvation, Christians were the same as slaves, owning nothing and having no freedom. We were slaves to sin. We didn't rectify this situation by calling out to God for help. God saw our need and sent his son to save us and then sent the spirit of his son to live in us and to prove that we are indeed sons and heirs. Verse 5 says that Jesus secured our adoption as sons. In the Greek, it says that through Jesus, we receive sonship, which is a concept that is like a Greek legal term. Under the practice of sonship, a wealthy person could take one of his servants and actually adopt him. And when that adoption became official in a legal sense, the person adopted immediately ceased to be a slave and immediately became a son. He became an heir of the person who adopted him and part of that family. His old life was gone. When Christians are saved by Jesus, they do the same thing, immediately move from death to life and are adopted as sons and daughters in a similar way. We also have heard Paul speak about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, when he says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba. Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Imagine a great hero of a man, and I wish there was somebody like this. I don't know of anybody, but I wish there was. But imagine a great hero of a man who went through the slave markets in the 17th and 18th centuries and even the 19th centuries and purchased slaves at great personal expense and then granted them their freedom and sonship so that they became full legal sons and heirs of his and no longer slaves. As wonderful as it would be for that to happen in human terms, it's even more wonderful that it has happened in spiritual and internal terms because that's what Jesus has done for us eternally. Tim Keller expresses it this way. It is as if Jesus came and rescued us from death row and then hung a congressional medal of honor around our necks. The death of the Son of God on the cross brought the legal status of sonship for those who have faith in Jesus. The sending of the Spirit is just as good, or almost as good, as it secures our actual experience of sonship, being sons and daughters of the King. The Spirit comes and makes us cry out, Abba, Father, and actually cries out, Abba, Father, through us. Thus, not only are we legally adopted sons and daughters, but our heart and feelings are transformed so that we love and act like sons too. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit inside of us interacting with our spiritual being tells us you are a son of God, you are adopted by God, you are saved by Jesus. Now, one other aspect of this wonderful Galatians 4 passage to discuss. Often, ministry to others will cause anguish and pain. And I don't just mean pastoral ministry. I mean any kind of ministry. We're all called to ministry because we're all part of the royal priesthood of believers if we're a Christian. And ministry to others will cause anguish and pain, just like the anguish and pain of parenting. Thus, we must love those we are ministering to with that kind of love. Paul calls the Galatians my little children because he has a parental heart melting with the kind of love for them. 
Fruitful ministry will always be born out of that kind of heart of melting love. Consider verse 19 where he says, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now this is a really interesting passage and in it we see a very, uh, I guess you would call it a spiritual or mystical definition of discipleship. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means that we are clothed in Christ, that we are sons and heirs of Christ, that the Spirit of Jesus lives in us, and that somehow, some way, Jesus himself is being formed in us, according to verse 19. We are to become more Christ-like, not just in our outer actions, but in our entire inner selves. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, the New Testament talks about Christians being born again. It talks about them putting on Christ, about Christ being formed in us, about our coming to have the mind of Christ. He says, put right out of your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and try to carry it out as a man may read what Plato or Marx or whatever said and try to carry it it, it out. The Christian walk means something far more than that. It means that a real person, Jesus, here and now, in the very room where you are listening to this, is doing things to you. It's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago, merely. It is a living man, still as much a man as you and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replace it with with the kind of self he has. At first, maybe only for moments, then for longer periods, finally turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, which is what Christian means, a being which, in its own way, has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. I believe that is, in large part, what happens when we abide in Jesus. This is where and when he brings to us life and life abundantly. He does it by the work of his spirit and not by the effort of our strength. So, adopted legally and spiritually, sons of God and co-heirs of, with Christ and transformed by his spirit from the inside out to conform to the person and character of Christ. That is the Christian life, my friends, and the Christian message. Let's continue with 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and he stirred up David against them to say, Go count the people of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of his army, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the troops so that I can know their number. Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are, while my lord the king looks on. But why does my lord the king want to do this? Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army left the king's presence to register the troops of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Aror, south of town in the middle of the valley, and then proceeded toward Gad and Jatzer. They went to Gilead and to the land of the Hittites and continued to Dan John and around to Sidon. Then they went to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Afterward, they went to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. When they had gone through the whole land, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab gave the king the total of the registration of the troops. There were 800,000 valiant armed men from Israel and 500,000 men from Judah. David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. 
When David got up in the morning, the word of the Lord had come to the prophet Gad, David's seer. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I am offering you three choices. Choose one of them and I will do it to you. So Gad went to David, told him the choices and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come on your land, to flee from your foes three months while they pursue you, or to have a plague in your land three days? Now consider carefully what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. David answered Gad, I have great anxiety, please. Let us fall into the Lord's hands, because his mercies are great. But don't let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the appointed time, and from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men died. Then the angel extended his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, but the Lord relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand now. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel striking the people, he said to the Lord, Look, I am the one who has sinned. I am the one who has done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's family. Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up and set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David went up in obedience to Gad's command, just as the Lord had commanded. Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him, So he went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David replied, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord, so the plague on the people may be halted. Aruna said to David, My lord the king may take whatever he wants and offer it. Here are the oxen for a burnt offering and the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives everything here to the king. Then he said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. The king answered Aruna, No, I insist on buying it from you for a price, for I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for twenty ounces of silver. He built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord was receptive to prayer for the land. And the plague on Israel ended. Psalm chapter 79, verse 1. God, the nations have invaded your inheritance, desecrated your holy temple, and turned Jerusalem into ruins. They gave the corpses of your servants to the birds of the sky for food, the flesh of your faithful ones to the beasts of the earth. They poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy keep burning like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that don't acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that don't call your name, for they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Don't hold our past iniquities against us. Let your compassion come to us quickly, for we have become very weak. God of our salvation, help us. For the glory of your name, rescue us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations ask, where is their God? Before our eyes, let vengeance for the shed blood of your servants be known among the nations. Let the groans of the prisoners reach you according to your great power. Preserve those condemned to die. Pay back sevenfold to our neighbors the reproach they have hurled at you, Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will thank you forever. We will declare your praise to generation after generation. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 1. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, 
Who are you like in your greatness? Think of Assyria, a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and shady foliage and of lofty height. Its top was among the clouds. Its waters caused it to gr- the waters caused it to grow. The underground springs made it tall, directing their rivers all around, the place where the tree was planted and sending their channels to all the trees of the field. Therefore the cedar became greater in height than all the trees of the field. Its branches multiplied and its boughs grew long as it spread them out because of the abundant water. All the birds of the sky nested in its branches, and all the animals of the field gave birth beneath beneath its boughs. All the great nations lived in its shade. It was beautiful in its size and the length of its limbs, for its roots extended to abundant water. The cedars in God's garden could not eclipse it. The pine trees couldn't compare with its branches, nor could the plane trees match its boughs. No tree in the garden of God could compare with it in beauty. I made it beautiful with its many limbs, and all the trees of Eden which were in God's garden envied it. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, since it towered high in stature and set it among the clouds, and it grew proud on account of its height, I determined to hand it over to a ruler of nations. He would surely deal with it. And I banished it because of its wickedness. Foreigners, ruthless men from the nations, cut it down and left it lying. Its limbs fell on the mountains and in every valley. Its boughs lay broken in all the earth's ravines. All the peoples of the earth left its shade and abandoned it. All the birds of the sky nested on its fallen trunk, and all the animals of the field were among its boughs. This happened so that no trees planted beside water would become great in height and set their tops among the clouds, and so that no other well-watered trees would reach them in height. For they have all been consigned to death to the underworld, among the people who descend to the pit. This is what the Lord God says, I caused grieving on the day the cedar went down to Sheol. I closed off the underground deep because of it. I held back the rivers of the deep, and its abundant water was restrained. I made Lebanon mourn on account of it, and all of the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its downfall when I threw it down to Sheol to be with those who descend to the pit. Then all of the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all of the well-watered trees were comforted in the underworld. They too descended with it to Sheol, to those slain by the sword, as its allies they had lived in its shade among the nations. Who then are you like in glory and greatness among Eden's trees? You also will be brought down to the underworld to be with the trees of Eden. You will lie among the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword." This is Pharaoh and all his hordes. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Amen. Well, friends, may the peace of God cover you today. May his great grace surround you and may the light of his face reach yours. Good day and Godspeed.